0: Today I'm reading from Luke 14, 7 to 14. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. We're continuing in the final topic on our series, Christ With Us, that we have been going through uh, during Epiphany. And as you know, there's been a tragic passing away of my mother a couple of weeks ago, and that, that called forth a lot of family obligations. And so I wasn't able to deliver a couple of messages, and they were very dear to my heart on baptism and a message on the transfiguration of Christ. So I've promised I will deliver those during Lent. I will uh, finish that material so that we have a good resource, because I wanted to create some podcasts out of that material. So the sermons I didn't deliver, I will deliver in the next few weeks. Um, And they're perfectly appropriate for Lent, too, so it it won't be a weird thing. But today, our final topic in the series of symbols of Christ in this world is the topic, the tradition of religious feasting, of the feast. And you can't have been a kid growing up in Sunday school, especially reading Old Testament stories, without knowing about feast days and feast seasons. It's a word we don't use much today. We use words like pig out. But we don't... I mean, you don't have people call you up and say, Hello. We're having a feast at the Empress Hotel. We're calling you up. No, we, we dinner parties, maybe. But when we think of a feast, we think of gluttony, right? Or the average eating habits of a teenager. <laughs> Same thing, right? But feast in the Old Testament can include multiple days, a week, a week. And it, yes, it did involve special foods, but it also involved costume and and symbols and celebration times, including dancing, which I'll look at a little bit in the future. Now, this, the two messages we just read, the two little teachings of Jesus that we just read, were about things that happen in a feast. He talked about... Those who come in during a feast and they they sit in the in the spot reserved for the VIPs. They go there right away because they've decided they are VIPs. And he, he speaks about something that people would have seen happen once in a while. If someone went and sat at the head of the table and the host had to come and say, hey, you know what, that's reserved for the guest of honor. And your ego collapses like, what, am I chopped liver? That's where the expression came from. And, yes, some Jewish guy at a party 2,000 years ago. What, am I chopped liver? And it went down. That's a separate book, though. It's not in the Bible. It's the book of Jewish sayings. Where was I? It's way too early on in this message to be going down a here. Anyway, Jesus would have the story where someone would then be told, no, 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 you're not the guest of honor. You move to the to the other end of the table. We're going to invite the bridegroom in or someone. Well, we can talk about some of the teachings that uh, Jesus gave us during feast days. And there was another parable of a feast coming up that we didn't read. And there are a few other references that Jesus makes to the feast in the kingdom of heaven. So that these earthly feasts were all, in fact, to be enjoyed for themselves, and they were signs and symbols of something heavenly, of something spiritual. That the earthly feast is an analogy of a heavenly, of a spiritual feast. Just as, in fact, all of life here is in some way symbolic of the higher life, the spiritual life, the resurrection life. And that's why Jesus was able to take anything from the food we eat to the little birds in the trees to the sunrise. He could take anything in this life and use it as a parable for the next life or for the fullness of the spiritual life. And so feasting, which comes from nothing more than the simplicity of food and what food is to us, food also has this earthly and this higher relationship to us. Food is the necessary sustenance of the body. It is what the flesh needs to live. And at the same time, it has flavor. And we love it. I've been one to confess my sins here because I believe that you should wear your sins on the outside. If you wear them on the inside, you are either being polite or you're a hypocrite. And the tendency will be to be a hypocrite. So it's better to just wear your sins on the outside, and then you can also talk about the forgiveness of Christ who forgives a sinner like me. So I'm setting you up. My sin, the sin for this week, is... um, Yeah, I can give you 52 different sins. That won't even touch my set. But this week, it's Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, you know, that's supposed to be politically incorrect. Apparently, you're not even supposed to tell your children such a thing exists. I was at a party not that long ago for someone, and I brought the bucket of chicken. Yeah, because I think if you share your sin, it's, it's easier on your conscience when you, when you eat some of that. And there was a young guy there, he was about 12 years old, and he said to me, I've only, I've only heard about this. <laughs> like, like I was some dealer, you know, like, yeah, here kid. Your mom says he can't have this? Here, try this. It'll change your life. Yeah, I really honestly don't know where I'm going with that one. <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's my sin. Well, Jesus uses the, the idea of food being both sustenance for the body, but also a, a joy in itself. And the joy is flavor. And there's nothing like deep fried batter for flavor. And look what we've done. We've taken... The primitive need to eat flesh, like watch the movie The Revenant and see the joy of eating flesh. It's not a chick flick, okay? Guys, go watch the movie. And we make uh, this art of cooking and recipes and decoration. Not only do we make fantastic recipes bringing spices and things together that normally are never found together in nature, but then we also doll it up on some table with flowers and candles and... And we're making, uh, we're, we're taking what's there and we're concentrating on the higher, I would say, spiritual element of it. Flavor. That there is a beauty to food and there's a beauty to fellowship around the table. And there's a beauty to making something natural even more beautiful by surrounding it with flowers and fellowship and good wine and coffee and all the rest. We do the same thing. Romance is another example, you know. We take this sexual need, we take the, the bodily, natural, God-given gift of sexuality, and, and then we wrap it up in the, in the high, lofty art of romance, and surround it in beauty, and in beautiful poetry, and in music, and frilly knickers, and all the other things that, Yeah, because we take something that is given to us on the one level and it is good on that level. And then we see that also in it is an opportunity to participate in bringing out the beauty and the spiritual meaning and the higher, the way it's pointing towards something better than this world, this body, this life. And so it is no... Coincidence at all that the Gospel of John, after opening as the new book of Genesis, invites us to see Jesus' first miracle at a wedding, wedding ceremony. And it's all about making that feast an overflow, supernatural wine for the joy of that feast. Just as it's no accident, I was talking to Glenn earlier today that, speaking of romance, that sandwiched in the middle of our Old Testament is the Song of Solomon, which if you haven't read it lately, get a flashlight and under the sheets at night, flip over your Bible and read the Song of Solomon. And one of the things that's been commented about this book in the Bible is that it never refers to God. Why would you have this book in the holy writings of the Hebrews that doesn't mention God? And so we've gone out of our way to add God into the book. So the theologians have said, well, it's actually a big parable. It's a parable about the love of God for his church, or the love of us for God. And that's that's true. I'm not denying that you can see it as a parable. But it's also just a celebration of love and romance and family and married life. And it's a beautiful book. It's written as a poem to be beautiful. And so... (laughs) The religious practice of the feast day and of the feast seasons and of the decoration of booths and of the temple and of wearing special garments and all these practices of bringing out beauty around certain seasons of the year is core to the analogical teaching, the spiritual symbolism teaching of Israel and it was taken over by the church. And so when Jesus begins to just make a few parables out of feasting, He's not referring to us doing a drive-thru or having a dinner party. He's referring to the social, culture, religious practice of Israel. Everybody went to feasts. You had to go to feasts. And there were many feasts happening. And there was a feast, and then there was a few days in between, and then the next calendar happened. There were at least eight major feasts in the calendar of the Hebrew year. And so he's talking not just about a a social party, he's talking about a way of life that involved the special season. It begins in the doctrine of the Sabbath rest. It begins with God teaching us and imprinting upon us the habit to take one day in seven and allow that to be different. And the core difference is the issue of rest. And it is rest from labor or it is rest from regular work. Is that the seven days of a human life will have a split in it. There will be the stuff you got to do to feed your faith. That's the food part. And then there's something you do because you're made in the image of God. And like God on the seventh day, you rest and enjoy the creation. That's the flavor, dinner party. That's the fancy stuff you do on top of the food. We were given the Sabbath day to rest. And we were given a thing called days of jubilee. I was born in the jubilee hospital. <laughs> so let me make this about me. No, the the jubilee, I like it because of the word. And then there was the... Was there not the jubilee of the coronation of the queen? And isn't the jubilee something like your 25th wedding anniversary? That's true. You're 25. So I looked it up. Jubilee... Well, we get this verb jubilation to to be jubilant. Jubilation. And it means great happiness, exaltation, joy, elation, euphoria, rejoicing, ecstasy, rapture, and glee. Jubilation. Let me go through that list again because we're all really sleepy here. And if angels came here and went, are they having jubilation? Another angel would have to say, no, they're worshiping. And the angel would say, they need to hear about jubilation and come to party grot tonight and practice it with dance, remembering to bring a snack and a five-buck cover charge. And then a third angel said, you're doing an infomercial when you should be preaching, so get, get with it. I once had a pastor who I used to listen to a lot. He was my Bible teacher named John MacArthur, Jr. I spent three years of my life listening to John, and he gave me all my basic knowledge of the Bible. And uh, and he once said, you know what, the word fun doesn't occur in the Bible. The Bible does not talk about fun. Fun is one of the sick things about our culture. We're the fun culture. The Bible doesn't talk about fun. Well, he was just wrong on that. Uh, The Bible doesn't use the word fun because that's a relatively recent word that we would use if we did a modern translation, but You tell me what's not fun about exaltation, joy, elation, euphoria, rejoicing, ecstasy, rapture, and glee, but no fun. Makes no sense. These are descriptions of human joyfulness, jubilee, and... We were told, you will have times of jubilee. It is couched in commandment. You are commanded to have times of jubilee. And the year of jubilee was even every 49 years. The nation of Israel had its whole social, economic, cultural world reset to zero. Exactly what we need happening in the United States election right now. You see a massive... You needed more. That's 75 years of reset. But there's a reset going on where slaves were set free, debts were forgiven, the land was allowed to rest, possessions that you had borrowed or lent or were on loan were given back, and everything was set back to a fresh new start, and it was associated with joy and celebration. Imagine that. A religion that puts everything back to a fresh start and says you can start again. Imagine that. A religion of second chances and third chances. I wonder if it's a symbol of something. So we have these feasts in Israel. And they are about rest. And they are about jubilation and celebration. And they are also about solemn remembrance. To remember. Not every one of the feasts was accompanied with the banging of tambourines and dancing, though some were. Some of them were meant to be solemn remembrance, the Day of Atonement. Solemn remembrance, and it was always focusing on one thing. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt And your entire cultural and personal identity is salvation from slavery. You were pulled out of Egypt, which is a symbol of sin and death. And by faith led to a land you did not know, the promised land. And it was given you for rest. So you will solemnly remember this. You were born in slavery, but you were delivered to the promised land. That transfers right over to the church, people. That's not just Israel. The analogy is simple. Every one of us is born into sin and death. That is what we're thrust into. And we journey by faith to a promised land. Solemn remembrance. Feast days to be remembered in their season, in their time. Now, If you wanted to have a quick list of what are some of the feasts in the Old Testament, you have one book to look at. Leviticus chapter 23. That's all you have to remember. The two and the three, 23, they follow each other. One, two, three. Leviticus, two, three. You read through it, it's a list of the different feasts. And I'm going to just tell you one of them. This Feast of Tabernacles. I'm just going to read this little passage from Leviticus. And you listen to what is being said. On the 15th day of the seven month, seventh month, when you gather in all the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord, seven days, seven days of celebration. On the first day, there will be solemn rest. So Saturday, take a breather, a party is coming. And then on the eighth day, you will also have solemn rest. And you shall take on that first day the fruit of splendid trees and the branches of palm trees and the boughs of leafy trees and willows from the brook, and you shall rejoice. This is a commandment. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. That's not enough. He keeps going. You shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord. For seven days in the year, it is a statute forever throughout your generations that you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And you shall dwell in little booths that you make for seven days. And all Israel will dwell in these booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, for I am the Lord your God. The Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration that is meant to create a tradition of remembrance for all the generations of Israel to remember deliverance and salvation. And it is a commandment to celebrate this. So that's the context of feasting and celebrating when Jesus begins to teach in Israel about feasts. And when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes, this is simply an invitation now to the whole rest of the world to come and join in and become part of spiritual Israel and to take these same symbols and sacrifices and joyful celebrations in Israel and see them now in a new spiritual light in Christ. And all the world comes and is part of the celebration of Israel. We have, for instance... A new Sabbath rest. We're not enslaved to certain traditions of Saturday Sabbath. But Jesus is our Sabbath, says the book of Hebrews. believe it's chapter 4. But we were given a new day of celebration. And it was Sunday because that is the day of the resurrection of our Lord. And Paul did teach the idea that it's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with keeping one day in seven. The option wasn't you can keep one day in seven, or none at all. No, the option was, you can keep one day in seven holy, or you can keep them all holy. But there'll be at least one in seven. He didn't give up on that. For you to step back into the joy and the remembrance and the celebration of Jesus Christ and His feast. And Jesus Christ took the feast during the Passover, the food. And took a little bit of it, bread and wine, and gave it and said, this is a new supper. And you know the Lord's Supper is instituted around a feast. And then in the behavior of the very, very early church, recorded all across the ancient world for the first three centuries, is an activity called the love feast. And it's there even in Scripture. And it's simply this. It's that Christians didn't just come together, and break a little piece of bread and have a little sip of wine as the symbolic last supper, the Eucharist. They didn't just do that. They did that after having shared a meal together. And we see this activity in the book of Acts. We see it mentioned in First Corinthians. We see a time where Christians came and brought food and wine and drink and did invite the poor and did invite those who had little to eat or nothing to eat to come together and share in a common meal precisely for the joy of fellowship, for the feeding of the hungry, to behave as a big family. And only at the end of it did they then also celebrate the Eucharist and the sign of the body and blood of Christ that makes this body come together for us to feast. The love feast. And it is at the abuses of the love feast where Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 11 saying, listen, when you you people get together in one place, you don't even eat the supper of the Lord. For each of you takes his own supper ahead of others who are hungry and another one gets drunk. He's not talking about the little symbolic food. He's talking about large quantities of food that people bring and don't share and end up eating among themselves. He's referring to a kind of communal feast. This is referred to again in Jude 12. Here he's talking about false teachers. Jude speaks about those who are blemishes on your love feasts. They spoil your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, they're actually just serving themselves. And we have a lot of post-biblical literature in the 2nd and 3rd century about the what the Christians did when they came together, and it involved a potluck meal. It did, people. That's what we did. We came together. We ate. We used part of that meal to also bring us to remembrance of Christ's Last Supper. And we had fellowship and joy around the table together. We had table fellowship together. And that was part of worship. Now, here's the teaching I want to draw from this. I have a controversial little sentence I'd like to just state. We have a moral obligation to celebrate. We have a moral obligation. We have spiritual commandments that tell us to celebrate. Now, we're the culture that tends to want to celebrate when it feels like it. As a matter of fact... One of the diseases of our entire culture is it is a culture that does what it wants to do whenever it feels like it. It's good to do some things when you feel like it, but you also need some structure. We have an obligation. I'll give you an analogy to it. In worship, we have an obligation to sing. There are the book of Psalms, the song of Solomon, it is music. Worship was never separate from music in the Old Testament. And it was never this. Have you heard this? Have you heard, um, you know, if you can't get into the song, if you can't make those lyrics be meaningful from your heart, you shouldn't sing them. You'll just be a hypocrite. Sit down and don't you sing. Only if you really mean those, then you can really sing. Now, you know that the warning there is to to not, say, be a hypocrite on the one hand. But it is, to, is there anything in the scripture that says, you know, when you begin to read the book of Psalms and you think, oh, I don't know, I don't feel like that psalm is where I'm at right now. Don't read it. Put it down. It's not the word of God for you today. No, what we do is we obey. We read the psalm and the psalm changes our mood. We come and we hear a song of worship. What it declares is truth. In song, it's declaring the salvation of God, or it's declaring the glory of God, and we're not in the mood to sing along? No, the songs pick us up and say, go through the motions. Even though your heart is dead, sing the songs. Say the words of the salvation of God. Sing songs of hope when you feel no hope. Sing songs of the forgiveness of sin when you feel guilty and ashamed. Let those words come through you and they will change you. They will transform you. If not in the moment, later when you're hiking in the woods and the melody goes through your head and those words are ready to be absorbed in your heart, you've taken them in in worship. They're the songs of your people, your culture, your denomination, your church. And we remember things when they're in melody. We remember them better, perhaps, in melody. We have an obligation to sing because God is glorious and praiseworthy whether we feel like it or not. And therefore, we are told in worship, come, sing these songs, remember these feast days, eat these meals, celebrate these seasons. I don't care what you feel like. I tell you, after a few days of doing it, you're going to start to feel good. Your mood will be changed. Your life cannot be run by your mood swings. But that which God gives us to obey his discipleship, his seasons, his practices, will shape our moods and will heal our emotions. We were talking about this at the place community when we were discussing again recently the theology of a worship service, that we begin with music, Precisely because when we walk in the door, we're not ready. We need to go through a process of becoming ready to either receive the Lord's Supper or to receive a word from God. And it takes time for us to be brought into a space of receiving. And song is one of those things. I use that as an analogy. You know, we we uh, we attend a birthday party, for instance. You know, how many birthday parties, especially with kids that I have been invited to, and I think, oh, it's that kid's birthday today. Do you have any idea how inconvenient this birthday is for me right now? This is the last thing I need right now. I forgot about it. Besides, I can't stand that kid. <laughs> we got to get a present. we got to show up. And you go, because it's a social obligation, I've got to go to this kid's birthday. And then we do these things. We put a stupid little cone hat on the kid. That I like. Make the kid look stupid? I'm happy with that. Then they give me a stupid little hat to wear. They say, "Yeah, you too, we're having a party here, a little noisemaker. And then we take wax and take these useless little candles. You know, if there's a power out, and you go, hey, i got a pack of birthday candles. Nobody is happy about that. They're useless. They only last three minutes. And we put this candle on top of baking. Someone's baked a beautiful cake, and we set fire to the top of it. And then we say, blow wax all over the food you're about to eat. And the kid does it and spits and wax and everything, and then they offer me the spit wax covered thing. It's a birthday party. Now, I go to this because by the end of it yes my mood changes because there were little 25 cent coins baked into that cake and the kid's going to choke on one and i am really good get okay, where my sins on the outside i've already been there but we do go we go to christmas parties and we go to birthday parties and we do go even when we don't feel like it and sure enough after a while in in the bondage of social obligation We actually do find the joys of life, the goodness of life, the fact that it was a good thing anyway. The fact that I can still remember getting a set of pastels on my seventh birthday with Clive Holden from St. Patrick's School. Are you alive there, Clyde? Did I say Clyde? Clive. Clive Holden. was his name? Oh, you don't know him. Why do I remember that birthday party? I don't know, but my mom had a party. And I remember the room we were in. And I remember the little gift I got, and I remember my friends. A celebration was made. It's marked my life, it's shaped my life. And it was important for me, whether people wanted to be there or not, it was an act of love, and it changed the mood. Well, just one more comment on dancing, and then I go a bit further into this and and close. Regarding dancing, people, you don't know Hebrew culture if you don't know dancing. It's like Greek culture. you got to smash plates, you got to dance. Dancing as worship to God, David did it, but there are commandments. We're encouraged in Psalm 149, let them praise and let them name his name with dancing. And Psalm 154 urges us, praise him with tambourines and dancing. I Just the first two, but there's tons of references to the celebration that involves the body. Now, here's the weird thing about how neurotic we are. There are many people who cannot enjoy themselves. There are people who can only go so far, they can't let go. They can't actually give in to a joyful time. And I don't know if that's healthy. It's sometimes associated with guilt. It is associated with shame, with religious restriction... Depression, or the sense of unworthiness. I don't deserve it. I, I can't let myself let go to this joy. Or there's a fear that God hates fun or hates celebration because maybe that's what they were taught in their religious upbringing, in their Sunday school. That dour, dark, black wearing music hating religion, you know, when the pendulum swang oh the other way against the Catholic Church, you know, they they're got too many feasts going. We're Protestants, we're gonna paint over all the paintings in the church, get rid of the music, get rid of the dancing a cappella music only if that and no joy. Well, I don't know. We've been correcting from that. That's not us. Those are our forefathers and mothers. As in Switzerland four years ago, I went into the Protestant churches. You don't get more Protestant than Switzerland. That's as as Protestant gets. And one of the things that did astound me is the obliteration of the artwork as it was all painted over white, kill it all off. You listen to the scriptures describe the detail of the artwork and the beauty that must go into the building of the temple, of Solomon's temple. That beauty and the adornment of life and the celebration of what is lovely for the eyes to see is a good gift of God. We reacted the other way to the point that even to this day there are people who cannot enjoy. They have a burden to bear to work. They need to work. They need to be doing things that are hard. And they can't relax. And they can't let go. There's something that needs healing there. The life given to Israel is one of balance. There's enough times of labor. There's enough time of shame. There's enough time for work and hardness and guilt and all that. But there has to be the Sabbath rest. And there has to be the seasons of enjoyment of the goodness that we know is there. Yes, life is labor. And yes, we'll eke our existence with the sweat of our brow. But the very ground you work in is full of beauty. And the very seasons that rain on the ground and the sunshine that gives life to the plants you sweat over, it's all beautiful. It all testifies of God's glory. So, today I'm passing on a commandment from the Lord. That you have a spiritual and a moral obligation in due season to take time and celebrate. Take time for joy and goodness. If you don't, you will wreck your humanness. It's not just an economic thing. Oh, you need two weeks off. you got to give them a three-week vacation. Why? Because then they work harder and make more money for the company. No. It's not you get one day off in seven so you're going to be better in the six days in the field. The six days in the field make possible the one day. That's the way Israel thinks. The day when I am a child of God, not just an animal trying to live off the face of the earth. And all the labor that we do, we set some aside so you can rest and just enjoy the taste of chicken. That's all I ask. I'm trying to work through the guilt. I'm trying to work through the I don't deserve this. Okay, so I'm going to end now. I've gone a bit too long. Just need you to know that the the celebration tonight, if you like square dancing, this is 10 times better. Contra dance. Everybody is welcome to come and learn a few steps and join into the crowd and have some celebration tonight. This celebration, which is traditionally called Mardi Gras, the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday, is the great feast before the 40 days of fasting during Lent, and it is bracketed by the other great feast, Easter Sunday. And just as Ash Wednesday reminds us we come from the dust and to the dust we shall return, so Good Friday reminds us that he went to the dust for our sake to raise us up again. So before we engage in the solemn season of remembrance called Lent, let us obey the moral obligation, come out and dance tonight, stick around for some fellowship and some food and some enjoyment right after the service today, and let this day be a marker in the season of your spiritual life. Amen.